0: Hi, and welcome to Top in Tech, a Global Council podcast. This week is the latest in our In Conversation series with the leading thinkers in tech policy and regulation. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by Sarah O'Connor. Sarah is a columnist and associate editor at the Financial Times. She writes a weekly column on the world of work, which I highly recommend to anyone who's interested in debates around employment policy, trade unions, and the role of technology in the workplace. So Sarah, thanks for joining us today. It's particularly great to have you here today because it's been a while since we've had the opportunity to talk about the interplay between uh, new technology and the workplace um, and those debates around the future of work, which is actually, uh, for my time at Global Council, was one of the first things that actually I worked on around. At the time it was then what the ride-hailing and on-demand economy meant for self-employment and the fragmentation of the labour market. And I, I think as we go on to discuss, some of those issues haven't quite been uh, resolved, but we'll, uh, we'll explore that uh, later. What I, what I want to do is three basic uh, things. Um, well, two basic things, but just sort of the, the first is divided in two. Firstly, reflect back on two of the major shocks to the world of work over the past five years. The first of those being uh, the pandemic, and the growth in hybrid working. Uh, The second is then this financial crunch that we're seeing in the tech sector, but more broadly uh, across the economy, linked to the end of uh, cheap money and what that has done to private sources of uh, funding from VCs, but also other private investors in particular. Once we've sort of delved into that, I'd then like to move forward and look ahead to the policy agenda that interacts with this particularly in the context in the UK where I think most people at the moment are expecting that there will be a new government next year, and that new government is likely to be at the Labour Party. So um, if you're happy with that, um, let's jump in with the discussion around uh, the pandemic. You've written in your FT column about the idea that people are becoming more sick through work. Um but at the same time, not becoming more productive. So there's clearly something awry here. Um, And I'd be very interested to get your view on whether the issue that's making people more sick is actually related to technology. Is it the fact that people are online more because we are hybrid working uh, in a way that perhaps we weren't doing so in the same extent uh, pre-pandemic? But in that context, I was struck when reading your column again last night that at the top of the uh, sectors, um, I think in the stats you use from the ONS that show it's actually sort of retail and transport and these more practical in-person jobs that presumably don't haven't been affected by things like hybrid working where there are the greatest increases in sickness over the last few years as opposed to IT and communications which seem pretty low down in that chart. I get for listeners uh, who haven't been able to visualize this that might be slightly confusing but the basic point is is technology an important factor or not? Or is there something wider that goes beyond us all logging on Zoom to do our work?
1: Yeah, I think there's definitely something wider going on. Um, I mean, if you look at, there have been lots of studies over the years into what kind of work is beneficial for your health and what kind of work is um, is bad for your health. Now, technology plays a part um, sometimes Uh, it can make it better and sometimes it can make it worse but actually those fundamental things are more around things like the security of work whether you're paid adequately um such that you're not constantly worried about whether you can pay your bills um autonomy at work is incredibly important for health so there are very tight correlations between um people who have no control really over the pace that they're expected to work at or um or what they're meant to do you know how they can go about doing their tasks if if your job is very tightly controlled and prescriptive and also has quite high demands and that's incredibly bad for your health and we have seen over the last sort of 15 20 years that the proportion of people who say that their jobs are like that has gone up now is that about technology or is that about something else i, I think it's probably a combination of the two i think partly that's sort of management practices you know in some of these lower paid sectors um there has been a kind of focus on trying to sort of squeeze every ounce of efficiency out of workers in the public sector. Similarly, you know, people are doing more with less um, because of austerity. Um, so none of those things are really about technology. But then I think technology does come into play among some of those lower-paid jobs that you talk about. Um, you know, you mentioned the gig economy. That's, that's one area where the work is sort of quite prescriptive while you have a lot of control over when you work, you don't have a lot of control over how you work. You know, the speed with which you um, complete your tasks is being sort of monitored at all times. Um, You know, HTV drivers uh, monitored by tachographs, like that's partly for their safety, but it's also um, increasingly the case that, you know, if you're driving a van, you might have a camera watching your face at all times, watching, you know, telematics, watching how well you drive. So I think there is a general kind of increase in in technological monitoring, which probably does have some health effects. So that's to kind of talk about the the maybe sort of more lower paid sectors. Um, for sort of white collar workers, um, I think I think it's been a, a sort of mixed blessing, really, the rise of remote work and and hybrid work. I mean, I don't know how you feel about it, but you know, to begin with, I really enjoyed working from home. Um, I have a little. Uh, daughter at home and so it kind of it felt more flexible it felt more easy to manage I really enjoyed not having to do the commute every day Um, and I think we've seen in the surveys that people use that extra time to maybe exercise a bit more or relax a bit more you know things that we know are are good for your health on the other hand you know certainly the kind of the, the world that we've ended up in which is this sort of hybrid world while I think those are advantages it has kind of dissolved that line between work and home even more, hasn't it? Um I mean, I think that was happening anyway because of the rise of emails on smartphones and all the rest of it. But now a lot of us really have the capacity to open our laptops and work anywhere at any moment. Um and we know that, you know, that feeling of being always on and always connected is not great for your for your mental health, for your sleep quality, etc. Um so I think, I think, you know, for for professional workers there's a bit of a mixed picture in terms of technology.
0: Yeah, I think it's interesting you talk about that personal experience that you've had, and I think we all have our our anecdotes. I think for myself, reflecting on it, the the greater flexibility of remote working is actually great in many ways because it means I can go back, do the nursery run, get the kids, see them before they go to bed and then log back on afterwards. But actually that can be pretty attritional as well. And actually mm. not having that clear and when it's repeated day after day and that not having that clear divide however inconvenient the commute was actually it did sort of provide a bit of a break even if you could log on later it did provide a much clearer break in the working day both to and from work than perhaps was the case um, beforehand I do wonder though as well when we think of the perspective of younger people who they have that where, where remote working has actually potentially isolated people a little bit more during the pandemic and that social element of work has been uh, perhaps stripped back and i think i think you said in a podcast that i was listening to recently sarah that you you would notice was often younger people who had come back into the office and i think at global council i think there was certainly immediately after the pandemic that was the, the same experience that we had and i just wondered in that analysis that you gave which was There are certain areas where technology has had impacts around autonomy on the on-demand economy, particularly in sort of transport and sort of areas like that where technology has been used. Um, Is there also a demographic element to that in your view? Is it that the change in ways of working perhaps are beneficial to people in certain situations? Perhaps they have kids and families and they're a bit older and they, they they don't mind being at home a bit more. Whereas with younger people, where we already have issues around mental health provision um in the UK that these that actually technology is exacerbating their situation in the white collar end of the scale of things?
1: Yeah, possibly. I think there was um you know, I think there were sort of two things going on there among young people. There were definitely young people who were kind of incredibly frustrated during the lockdowns, who had started a new job and weren't able to get in and meet anyone and get to know how the organisation really works. You know, I think we know that training works better face to face building up social capital is very hard to do from behind a screen when you're sitting in your, you know, parents, um, spare bedroom or whatever. Um, so I think that, you know, I think young people, particularly people who were just starting out in their careers did suffer much more than, than people who were already established. You know, when I, when I, um, went on mat leave, that was kind of when COVID happened. So in the end there was sort of a two or three year period where I just wasn't really in the office very much. Um. And I, and that was kind of fine because I've been at this organization for so long that I know everyone and I know what the kind of patterns of um, relationships are and the the power dynamics I know who to go to if I need to get my work phone sorted out, et cetera. But actually, if you don't have any of that sort of um, social capital and sort of soft knowledge of how the organization works, then I think it was incredibly difficult. That said, I think there's some young people who actually are very, very comfortable um, working remotely and and some young people, I think who've actively sort of sought out roles like that. um uh, and I know some employers have said that they've actually kind of struggled to get some of their younger workers back in. so i think it I think it does depend. But you're right. I mean, what we do know is that you know everyone's mental health kind of suffered a bit during the lockdowns, but younger people in particular. and for them, that's part of a much longer trend that we've seen over the last you know decade or so, whereby. We're seeing rising levels of young people saying they feel lonely, rising levels of young people sort of struggling with um, mental health problems and struggling to access treatment for them. Um, and so that's a real that's a real worry in itself. And, you know, there are lots of debates over why that's happened, um, what the various different factors could be, whether it's macroeconomic or indeed whether it's technological. You know, a certain school of thought um, thinks that actually social media and the, the sort of dawn of smartphones and and kids having access to Facebook and Instagram um, had a really bad effect on on their development.
0: What do you think on that? Is, is there a policy solution here? I mean, if we think about that point we were talking about beforehand, if work is too all-encompassing and people can't switch off, so to speak, there's a lot of debate around this sort of the right to switching off or the right to logging off. I mean, do you see that as something that, governments and policymakers should be thinking about or do you think that is something that is going to have to be set company by company organization by organization
1: yeah it's been something I've been meaning to kind of look into in more depth how those how those um, policies are working out in the countries that have started to try them I mean I think it's it's still early days my instinct is that while I understand that policymakers would want to try and do something that this might be something that's better worked out at a organizational level um just because every company is so different in terms of its needs and and how it works you know some companies are multinational and have um people all over the world that need to communicate in some way or other um you know it's, i think it's very hard to kind of have a one size fits all solution but that's not that's not to say that obviously um there are par there are power dynamics within companies and so you know in some companies the workers interests are more adequately represented than in others um so it's it's not a sort of panacea to say oh just let just let companies and workers sort it out themselves because clearly some workers have more say over their working conditions than others do um but yeah i mean i think it's a i think it's a very interesting question and it's something that um we're all going to have to think about more over the next few years i think
0: or well, definitely want to come back to that point uh you sort of the various things you've said so far around the autonomy in the workplace setting these things organization by organization and the power dynamics between the organization and the people who work for them and clearly jumping out through all of those things is the role of uh, trade unions or indeed the absence of trade unions so definitely want to come back to that particularly in the context of um, a potential labor government but if we could just quickly before we do that you talked about the on-demand slash gig economy, whatever we decide we want to call it. And again, this is something that I know you've written a lot about um, over the past you know, six to 12 months and much, much longer than before that. But you've talked about the end of cheap money uh, and how this has affected uh, that particular sector. And one thing that always struck me a little bit when you saw these companies growing and the sector growing was almost every other week when you lived in London, at least, there was a new on demand provider and i just couldn't get and they had all sorts of discounts um all sorts of uh, ways of um all sorts of ways of enticing new users and and consumers but it never seemed to me to be particularly sustainable even without the end of cheap money um is that your view that this was this was always the party was always going to end at at some point or um do you think there's something very particular about how the funding was linked to um, low interest rates and so on and so forth
1: i mean i don't think the party would have got going without cheap money um because all of those startups that you saw um with all of the kind of the people whizzing around london with their branded jackets i mean none of that was economic right i mean none of them were charging as much for the service uh, and the product as it cost to provide them so the only way in which you can do that is to um make continual losses and the only way you can make continual losses is if people are willing to just keep funding you indefinitely and for a long time that was what what was going on and you know all of these platforms had the same sort of pitch to investors which was we're going to lose a lot of money to begin with but then we'll reach scale and then we'll think about how to how to make it profitable Um, and I think that's the sort of argument that works in an era in which money is basically free but it isn't an argument that works when interest rates are rising to sort of five percent or so um so yeah I think I think that whole that whole sort of era of people being able to get things brought to their house within minutes um you know for not very much money was you know it was great for consumers uh, I've seen people describe it as a kind of millennial life lifestyle subsidy Um, And I think there's something to that. I mean, I would definitely object to the notion that it was just millennials that were benefiting from it. But, you know, in in a sort of decade in which wage growth was dreadful, um, I think the fact that all of these services were popping up that were kind of making your life easier or more convenient for a very low fee probably helped people to feel a bit better about the world than they otherwise would have done. I think it it sort of insulated us a bit from from the reality of what was going on with the macroeconomy. Um, you know, you weren't getting a pay rise, but you were able to get, you know, a cab whenever you wanted it for £6 to get you across London. Um, but yeah, my view is that it, that was never sustainable. Um, and I, I've never been convinced of, of how any of these platforms plan to become profitable.
0: Yeah, and I think on the, on the sustainability point, it does seem to be that a lot of companies and investors were looking at the experience of the ride hailing sector and transposing that into other areas for instance for example food delivery and if ride hailing if we take london as an example uber genuinely was there first um so they were able to gain scale and those network effects by through the first mover advantage and then quite happily in some ways although it was not smooth it almost got locked in by their regulatory battles with tfl which further delayed other competitors getting in. And it was never quite clear to me at the time that you had those same dynamics in food delivery, for example, um, and they would always be much, much more competitive and those that discount-led model um, was difficult. On the on the benefits to consumers, I also wonder if there's this geographical element, It's whether maybe it was millennials who gained the most, but others obviously enjoyed it too. But also geographically, I remember I live in Penge in Southeast London. I remember we couldn't get Deliveroo for you know, for years after other parts of Central London, I can only imagine that replicated around other parts of the country. So there is obviously that those benefits were were geographically concentrated as well as um, perhaps um, in age. The other thing that I always think about whether it, it would have caught up with them is then around employment and workers' rights. Clearly, um, there are grey areas here between who is self-employed and who is a worker or an employee. Um, And it was always seemingly the case, even when we started working on this issue back in 2015-16, that the employment agenda would also potentially catch up with some of these companies, which we've we've seen with the the judgment against Uber uh, in the UK. We hear mixed views, though, from industry on this, often arguing that drivers or delivery riders don't actually want to be workers or employees. They actually like the flexibility of being self-employed. From this, the work that you've done here, do you do you have a particular take or a particular view on the validity of, of these arguments?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think you're totally right that there are two things that we're going to catch up with the gig economy um, broadly um, defined. One was that, yeah, if you have a business model in which you lose money and the bigger you get, the more money you lose and there are no barriers to entry, it's very hard to see how that's ever going to become sustainable. And the other was that when you're, basically sort of skirting arbitraging uh labor law at some point that the courts are going to catch up with you and as you say we've seen that happen with uber i mean there've been lots of judgments now in lots of different jurisdictions that have all basically gone the same the same way with a few exceptions you know deliveroo um has successfully argued its case that it's that its riders are self-employed so it's not exclusive but you know you can see in in the eu that their um they're inching closer towards trying to um, uh, address this as well. My view on kind of what what workers want is that I think the I think in a way it's a sort of false dichotomy, um, and I think that that false dichotomy it suits the it suits the the platform companies to present it as such. So I think it's definitely true that people who work in the gig economy value the flexibility you know sometimes people on the left have a kind of unfortunate habit of implying that everyone in that sector is is sort of exploited and has somehow been sort of duped into it um i don't think that's the case at all i think people are doing that work for a reason and one of the reasons might be that they don't have better options but another another of the reasons is that you know if you're weighing up that kind of work against some other kind of low paid job you do have the control to choose when when you want to work and I think people genuinely value that it goes back to this uh, question over autonomy um you know if you don't know when your schedule is going to be it's a nightmare particularly if you're trying to balance your job with someone else in low paid work particularly if you're trying to figure out your childcare. um so you know I've spoken to um sort of delivery drivers and uber drivers who say that you know this work is the only one that kind of means that they can make sure that there's always going to be someone to pick up their kid from school or to deal with some emergency. Um, so I think that's genuinely valuable to people and shouldn't be discounted. But what I would take issue with is the notion that self-employment is the only way in which to get that level of flexibility. Um, and I would also take issue with the notion that people in that sector don't feel that they would like an improvement in their working conditions. Um, And, you know, what happened with Uber in the end is that they lost that Supreme Court judgment. The the drivers were allocated as workers. um, And things have carried on much the same. Um, So I think Uber's argument that this would completely destroy the business model has been proved to be not not the case. Um, You know, the workers now, they get minimum wage for the time that they're driving. Um, This is kind of slightly not what the Supreme Court judgment had suggested. So arguably Uber is still kind of slightly skirting the law but they are now, you know, auto enrolled into pensions. Um, They've got a kind of collective bargaining agreement with the union. Um, So, you know, broadly, their working conditions have got better. They are now classed as workers, and yet they still have that flexibility. So I think the idea that you can only have flexibility if you agree to be completely self-employed and have no employment rights was was a kind of a false choice.
0: Yeah, I don't think that's Probably reflective of 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 where we've ended up. It's what's also quite interesting is that while you've seen Uber implement the judgment, it's not necessarily been the case that others in the sector have done the same. And you see this slightly fascinating dynamic whereby they have now positioned themselves as the the poster poster child of regulatory conditions within the sector, and that that sort of flip. Um, from one extreme to the other has been pretty fascinating from a policy perspective to witness. But I think this takes us quite neatly into that third section I wanted to get onto, which is looking, f- looking at the, your views on what the policy environment looks like, where you see this going in the future, and particularly where we think a Labour government may perhaps take some of these uh, issues. Because at the moment, if we're frank, if you look at where... We've just had a departmental reorganization in the the UK where the business department was split up. It obviously is in charge of uh, employment uh, policy. There's barely been a mention of employment policy as part of this. It's all about tech, innovation, science, how these all come together, trade as well. It's all sort of about growth, which seems to imply that the Taylor Review, which I think was 2017 under Theresa May, around uh, revamping the UK's employment rights issue, that that, that agenda is very unlikely to be touched upon by government in any meaningful way before the next election. But with Labour potentially forming the next government, suddenly those ideas, and more ideas beyond it, are, are, are back, potentially. So I wondered just to get your view on on what you think is most important from the sorts of ideas that Matthew Taylor or others, indeed, have sort of put out there for improving our system. Is it around improving how enforcement works so we know that tribunals only apply to those workers who actually make that case uh, they don't have wider applicability i mean uber just decided to give wider applicability to that supreme court judgment it didn't necessarily have to um is that something that you think is is important to focus on or is it around the world the classification system i mean we talked about gray areas is it that it should be like the eu is doing an onus on the employer to prove that someone is is self-employed rather than an employee i mean which in those i mean doesn't have to be those two but which of that bundle of ideas do you think should be or potentially thought about again and resurrected
1: yeah so from those ideas that came out of that taylor review i think um you know my view would be that trying to do something on classification um it's just a you're just, you're inviting a nightmare upon your heads. You know, it's just, it's so complicated. It's so difficult. Um, it's very easy to sort of look at it and say, oh yeah, you know, we could tidy that up a bit, or maybe we could create another, another classification that, you know, somewhere sits in between, but I just think the whole thing is just a can of worms. And every time anyone has tried to look at it, they've just got bogged down, um, there are so many potential winners and losers, so many unintended consequences to trying to do that, um, that if it was me and I was a government and I wanted to actually get something done, I would just I would just leave that alone. Um, enforcement, I think, is a much better area to focus on because we know that in the UK, it's fairly lightly regulated labour market anyway, but we don't actually enforce the regulations that we do have very well at all. Um, so you referred to the fact Of of employment tribunals. I mean, a lot of employment rights in the UK, you can only enforce them if you yourself go to a tribunal. Uh, We know that if you're lower paid, you're less likely to do that. Um, There are, you know, there's costs involved. Even if you go to a tribunal and you win your case, there's no guarantee that your employer will actually pay you what you were owed. Um, On top of that, the, the kind of elements of employment law that are enforced by regulators, whether it's HMRC enforcing the minimum wage, or, um, the health and safety executive doing health and safety, you know, those guys are not doing a great job either. Um, we know that there's an awful lot of, um, areas in which bad practice is sort of allowed to continue pretty much with impunity. Um, and so I think a lot of that comes down to just more resources. We don't have as many sort of labor inspectors per thousand workers as, um, most other countries in Europe. So part of it is just uh, beefing it up. And, and also I think maybe just having, I mean, there's been talk for a long time about creating a sort of a single all encompassing sort of labor market regulator, which I think probably would be useful, particularly if it was willing and able to take a view on some of these emerging business models um, so that you don't have to wait sort of 10 years down the line for the courts to pass judgment. Um, so those are the things from, from sort of the Taylor view and from ideas that are, are already sort of knocking around in the space. And then, I mean, you mentioned, um, the possibility that labor could win the next election. If that happens, I think their you know, of, of their suite of policies on employment, the one that I think would be most significant is their plan for sexual collective bargaining. Um, which would actually be huge, like a very big transformation of the way the UK labor market works right now and has received very little attention or scrutiny. Um, And I wonder if that sort of suits labor for the time being, because they don't want to scare the horses. And um, while they've sort of signed up to this, I'm not sure that they necessarily want to talk about it in great detail. But, you know, we don't have sexual collective bargaining in this country. Um, And so it would change very much the way in which things are done in the sectors at which they try to implement it
0: yeah you're right it, it doesn't that particular policy does not really fit with what we see of the current strategy from the labor leadership to go to davos uh to uh that as everyone has dubbed the prawn cocktail offensive 2.0 or whatever whatever we're saying This this attempt to sort of calm business concerns about what labor may or may not do but clearly that would have a a, a very far-reaching impact on that and we haven't heard much from you know the Labour front bench or indeed their critics around that particular policy but clearly that would uh, be highly controversial if and when it comes but I just get your view on on the idea of of, of collective bargaining it was it's been argued by some that if you look at the UK's uh, non-existent wage growth over the past decade um, that one of the reasons behind that is that we don't have collective bargaining. If you compare the UK to continental peers, whether in Scandinavian countries, Germany or elsewhere, uh, wage growth has tended to to, to move up uh, much more ahead of inflation, or at least in line with inflation, in a way in which perhaps it hasn't done in the UK um, over the past uh, few years. Do you think that is a missing ingredient in terms of making sure that workers within within this country, do get fair pay rises?
1: Um, So I think it's a really interesting argument. One country that I think is worth watching is New Zealand, because they, very similar to us, had a very sort of decentralised system whereby, you know, trade unions bargain in a sort of workplace-by-workplace basis. Um, And the government there has just brought in what it calls fair pay agreements, which are basically um, sectoral agreements whereby all of the unions and all of the employer bodies in a sector have to get together and agree minimum standards. So minimum pay rates, um, but also agree, you know, um, about training and about conditions and that sort of thing. And they're sort of focusing it on sectors that have proved very difficult to unionize in any other way. Um, uh, so like off licenses and bus drivers and, and, you know sort of specific occupations where paying conditions have been sort of stuck on the floor for a really long time um and i think if labor brought in sexual collective bargaining in the uk they would do something similar so i think they're i think they've said that they would start with social care which is an obvious place to start um because paying conditions are, are very poor there we know there's massive recruitment and retention problems unions struggle to do much about it because every individual care home is you know eight people or ten people or six people. Um, domiciliary care workers are sort of on their own going from house to house. So it's not an easy sector to unionise in any other way. Um, in terms of whether it's effective, I think it definitely is effective in countries like Germany where it's where it's sort of part of the fabric of the economy. What I wonder about is whether you can impose that kind of model on an economy that's not used to it. Um, so in the UK, you know, we're used to quite sort of antagonistic relations between employers and unions, um, whereas in countries like Germany, it's it's much more cooperative, same in Sweden. Um, it might be that if you change the structure, then you change the relationship. Um, so it could be that it could be um, a really good policy that not only like raises pay and conditions in certain sectors, but also maybe changes tone of the relationship between unions and employers reduces the likelihood of strikes because people sort of feel that they're more on the same side and um, that's the sort of ideal scenario um alternatively it might be that you know uh it's just very very difficult to get these parties around the table it's very hard to get them to agree on anything um in new zealand if they if they don't agree then basically the government just imposes something so then you end up in a scenario where the government is just actually t- um sort of intervening in the economy in quite a a direct way, um, and I don't think that the government is necessarily the right um, body to decide exactly what paying conditions should be in all these different sectors. So I think the um, the jury is out, really. But it's a very interesting question to be asking. So I'm I'm definitely curious to hear more about about Labour's plans on that.
0: Thanks, so The last thing I just wanted to touch on: you mentioned a few times earlier autonomy. We've seen on the eu side with the platform workers directive that not only is it trying to have this presumption of employment so thereby put the burden on the employer to show that someone is self-employed rather than the other way around where often it's the case that it's the individual that has to prove they are employed there's also provisions around how algorithms and technology are used um in order to organize work and various provisions talk around the transparency of how these uh how these are done do you think something like that would be desirable in the uk in order to give greater autonomy it could be in as examples you gave early the on-demand economy in you know lorry driving or whatever but do you think something along those lines is somewhere where you would think an intelligent employment labor market policy under the next government might want to take a look
1: yes i think that is a very good idea um as you say, sort of algorithmic management has been pioneered, I suppose, by those gig economy platforms, but it's certainly not limited to them. And we're starting to see it spread into all kinds of other workplaces as well. Um, and the problem with that is that unlike a boss or an employer who's made a rule and you can go and argue about it or you can go and say, actually, that decision's not fair and this is why. Um, often, these algorithms sort of operate in black boxes, which means that no one really knows why they've decided what they decide. It's very hard for the employee to um question why an algorithm has made the decision that it has, whether it's that they've disqualified you from the platform or they've said that you uh, aren't uh working fast enough um whatever it might be and well, we know that algorithms make mistakes sometimes, and so you do need some um uh, measure of accountability and Transparency. Um, otherwise, you end up in a situation where neither the employer nor the employee really knows what's going on and why these decisions are being made, and yet they're having sort of real-world impacts on people's lives. And I think that that just kind of breaches people's basic view of what fairness is. Um, now, I mean, GDPR regulations themselves have um, give you a right to not have an automated decision be made. Um, you know you have the right to request a human review of an automated decision so to to a certain extent GDPR already offers some protection to this sort of algorithmic management but I don't know how much it's actually sort of being used in practice um, so yeah I definitely think you know thinking harder about about those questions um, would be a sensible avenue for policymakers.
0: Yeah certainly on the GDPR point the impression i have at least on the enforcement side i don't think i've seen any big cases that the information commissioner's office has really launched in this regard it tends to be more related to data breaches or misusing say children's data um, in a certain way that shouldn't have happened i haven't can't say i can think of one um, off the top of my head where it has been more related to workplace issues and i suspect that provision is something that might be being uh, applied by companies without the screw, you know, it might be happening already, but actually in terms of it being breached and cases being taken, I'm not sure there've been too many so far. Although to be fair on the ICO and others, the GDPR is relatively nascent. And it's only now that in countries like Ireland, we're starting to see some of those big fines against companies like um, Meta and Instagram. So Sarah, if I could just quickly summarize, the, so was, thank you for taking us through that, but so technology might be part of the problem. Uh, But there are wider issues around the workplace that aren't necessarily linked to it. So autonomy being a big issue here. In one area where it clearly has affected the economy is the the on-demand side of things. I think we've concluded that that was never going to be quite sustainable and we're going to see what comes out in the wash. But regulation has been a little bit slow, but is sort of looking like it's going to catch up. Certainly on the EU side, they they are trying to. In other individual EU member states, we've seen some of this and with a Labour government, that may follow. But in terms of what we should look out for, better enforcement is one area that can probably be anticipated and is probably relatively straightforward to deliver. There might be something in and around autonomy, but that really controversial issue is one that we need to be looking out for moving forward is around sectoral collective bargaining and just seeing does that make its way into the Labour manifesto or not. And if so, do they, how do they go about trying to implement this? Because it seems like a real uh, thorny issue uh, that if they do keep in, it's going to uh, cause a lot of debate, both from business, but I suspect certain sections of the media as well. So look, just to say thank you so much uh, for joining us uh, today. It's been a really real privilege to have you on and to get further of your thoughts beyond uh, what we read each week uh, in your column and, and elsewhere. Um, And just to those on the line, just to thank you for joining. And just if you're interested in any of the issues we've talked about today, don't hesitate to get in touch. You can find our contact details uh, for me, but also for the wider Global Council team at www.global-council.com. Thank you, Sarah. And thanks everyone for joining. Bye-bye.